Welcome to No Small Talk, the arts and entertainment podcast for the Arkansas Times, sponsored by the Bentonville Film Festival. I'm Stephanie Smith, and I'm here with Amaya Jones. Hello. And today we're going to start by uh, highlighting just a few things happening in the area. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about me being very late to the game on the true crime anthology, The People versus O.J. Simpson, a uh, couple of horror flicks, and of course we'll round it out with some recommendations and the move at the very end. First up, definitely check out uh, the to-do list in this week's Arkansas Times. There's a bunch going on. It seems like sort of after Easter is when everything kicks in. This uh, covers March 29th through April 5th. Uh, there's a show uh, Friday night south on Main by an up-and-coming blues guitarist, Jackie Benson. You should definitely check out. If you catch anything and you don't know Jackie Benson yet, check out a tune called Always Free. She filmed a live performance of it with her dad on bass as a submission to this year's NPR's Tiny Desk Contest, and the tune is called Always Free. Her name's Jackie Benson. Uh, also, Lavelle Davison is this guy who was on The Voice, NBC's no. The Voice, and did not win, sadly. Uh-huh. Um, faced off uh, singing Rihanna's Love on the Brain and lost out uh, to, to another singer. Uh, who shall remain unnamed because why Lavelle Davison's the one from Little Rock <laughs> so Lavelle Davison is back in town he's gonna be performing this Sunday at Gigi's Soul Cafe and Lounge in Maumel with a bunch of sort of MVPs vocally speaking Tawana Campbell Haywood King Dee Dee Jones Keith Savage and others you could pay 20 bucks for a VIP ticket and he'll sign a picture of himself for you there's also this really killer band, Making Movies. Do you know this band? I do not know this band. They spill themselves as sort of Afro-Latino, but my understanding is that, ancestrally speaking, their ancestors are from Panama, and they borrow a lot of rhythms from, like, cumbia and Cuban music, and that's really sort of intrinsic in, in what would otherwise maybe be, like, more funk or soul. Mm-hmm. Really cool outfit. Also playing at South on Main, and that's Saturday night, making movies, and uh, Uniwa opens that show. Oh, cool. Pretty great. And we'll get to a few others later. But first, Omaya, I wonder if you might share with us any news on the Arkansas Times film series front. Oh, yeah. So first, I just want to reiterate that people should just mark the third Tuesday of the month on their calendars because that's when the series happens at the Riverdale Town VIP Cinema. And the show starts at 7 o'clock. Since the last time we recorded, we've gotten some of the films confirmed. So I can tell you that, for example, in, and these are a ways off, but in July, we're going to show The Piano. And then in uh, August, we're showing The Red Shoes, which is the old Powell and Pressburger film. And then the month after that, we're showing All That Jazz. And then I think for the month of October, we're showing One Car Wise In the Mood for Love. And so this is going to sort of continue the idea of sort of picking a theme from a film and using that to inform the, the next pick with the one exception being that in the mood for love for some reason with the distributors we weren't able to show it sooner than october so we're gonna have to like juggle some things around ah uh, yeah, yeah yeah so wait so do you tell us what the daisy chain sort of links are between the movies or is that up to us to figure out oh that would be a neat game actually we should do uh, if we could do that yeah uh, but I guess the only thing is that we had to wait till after the movie's over, and then people sort of guessing like, what is the connecting thing of these? Are we gonna Maybe to anticlimactic. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I think actually that could be a lot of fun if we could get like a lot of people to participate in that. So yeah, people should definitely do that. So what I can tell you is, 
I don't know if I should say what the what we're trying to get for next month, or if we should wait till it's official. What, what do you mm, think? I think I think maybe keep it under wraps. Okay, we'll keep it under. Listen wraps. in next time. Yeah. So that would be interesting to see if people can connect sort of what thematically the link between this film and and Bobble Flambor is would definitely be interesting. And oh, the, oh! So there's not only daisy chains between the movies coming up, but this yes first one will link back to our last one in the heist movie series Bob LaFlember. Yes, right. Okay. Uh-huh. And then, so then the month after that, there'll be a film that links back to Bob LaFlember, but not necessarily to, or, excuse me, it links back to the film before, but not necessarily Bob LaFlember, and then we'll connect to the next one too. Sweet. Yeah. And so that is the third Tuesday of every month, always at Riverdale 10 Cinema, and always a good time. We always write a little bit about it in the um, in the paper prior to that, so... Keep an eye out. And thank you, Omaya, for curating that series. No problem. I enjoy it immensely. We will talk more about movies on the next little segment of No Small Talk. We'll be right back. Welcome back to No Small Talk. We are going to get into the portion of the show we call The Well, um, sort of more in-depth discussions. And today we're just going to throw a few recommendations at you. Number one, for me, I'm incredibly embarrassingly late to the game on this but there's the true crime anthology that just dropped on netflix called the people versus oj simpson it's a serial they're all about an hour long sarah paulson plays marcia clark cuba gooding jr plays oj simpson and uh, sort of relives the oj simpson saga through the lens of uh, uh race but also media and i just i thought it was fascinating i'm not much of a binge watcher and this totally drew me in i was originally aired on fx in the spring of 2016 but there are bits of it that feel very much now to me yeah i feel so i didn't watch it i still haven't seen it but my experience was when it was airing was reading people tweet about it in real time and sometimes it was hilarious, but it does seem like it did really strike a nerve as being still sort of relevant. Because I think that was still much closer to like Ferguson and like race and the judicial system were still very much in the news in a way. And I think that this the show kind of taps into a lot of that. It does. In a strange way, it's kind of it's kind of neat that it dropped on Netflix now because it feels mm. like it's an extension of that conversation. What really struck me about it is the editing job. So it's told pretty much chronologically, but there are these beautiful editing moments. For example, there's one situation in which uh, Judge Ito is, uh, Lance Ito is about to make a pretty crucial decision uh, in the case. And the camera cuts to him. And then there's a scene where he looks to like over to his left Mm -hmm. and it's very clear to the viewer that he is witnessing that he's on camera. And, and so it's kind of just bizarre in the context of now Mm -hmm. when everything's recorded and you know, the statistics are like there are umpteen minutes of YouTube downloaded for every minute of real life lived. Right. right? That that all sort of, this was a moment in which that was really fed just the idea that there's no part of what we're doing that that's not public in nature if if we're sort of engaging in social media engaging in um, facebook and to me it marked sort of the beginning of a point in time when all acts became public and sort of the 
the decisions in this were weighted differently because these things were on TV. The decisions that were being made on a legal basis were in, to use the words of Johnny Cochran in this series, bigger than OJ. And this happening in the context of, of the Rodney King riots really framed frames the whole thing beautifully. The very first scene you see is of the riots. So by the time you get to this trial, you realize that this has been a bubbling volcano of sort of um, tension. And, and then it all comes to, to a head in this you know, courtroom on camera in front of people. Yeah. And isn't, isn't it the case that this trial was sort of the birth of, like this was at a time when 24-hour cable news wasn't exactly a thing. It was sort of birthed court TV, which I think it's like, that's like where Nancy Grace people started. And it was like a real phenomenon where people were watching this and consuming this trial every day in right. a way that they hadn't that you couldn't before right and i think because i wasn't really maybe i was either not old enough at the time to witness it in that way or i was just you know I, this was what 1991 is that right maybe a little later like 93 93 so I was 12, 13 years old. I, I didn't, I mean, I just was in a different place. Yeah. <laughs> um, I wasn't watching the trial, but there, there's some beauty, beautiful moments uh, in the series that point out the way that people began to observe this trial mm-hmm. as if it were, as if it were made of lighter stuff than it was, you know, as if it were, um, as if it were the behavior was as if they were watching like a sports game in a bar with everybody cheering right. at the at the TV. And then there's this there's other really amazing performance by Courtney B. Vance, who plays uh, Johnny Cochran. And it also struck me sort of that this was the beginning of the idea of like a cult of celebrity, that he had become this public figure that was really well known before the trial even began. And that that was used in this particular way to get out a message that may or may not have mm-hmm. had anything to do with O.J. Simpson, but w- which was important in a much larger context. Right. R- really, really incredible uh, piece of editing and some incredible performances. So it's on Netflix. Check it out. It's pretty intense viewing. I like to binge watch things in the kitchen while I'm cooking, and this is not for that. <laughs> it's okay. definitely like you're, you know, you're going to be drawn in. You're going to um, pay attention and, yeah, just really relevant there there's a lot of like sort of retroactive uh echoes of movements like black lives matter and um you you know you you can you can feel how present all of that is even though this was 1993 so beautifully done so like when you first mentioned uh oj made in america i thought you were talking about you thought i was talking about oj made in america right right yes yes which i think like was also a multi-part story of O.J. Simpson. It was nominated for an Academy Award. And I think like at the end of the first part of that, it ends in around like 1980-ish. So that sort of gives you like an idea of the timeline that it's working with. It's sort of telling the whole story of O.J. from birth to like through the trial. Um, and it talks a lot about race and sort of O.J.'s relationship with race and how he didn't even consider himself to be black. Apparently, like that was that was like a thing, and so I, I know at one point there's a story of when the I think like the they took the jury to OJ's home as mm-hmm. part of the trial, mm-hmm. and like the defense team staged the house, like they put up photos of OJ with black people, 
So like, this happens mm, in the in okay. the serial as well. I found myself at so many moments in this wanting to go to Google and be like, did that really happen? Because so much of it was so absurd. But but right, the way that it was played, um, however truthful it, it, it was, however, you know, true to life this was, was that they staged art. Mm-hmm. Uh, they removed like sort of very like some like high decorative art from his house and replaced it with like figures of you know civil rights heroes Mm -hmm. and you know tugging all of these strings of 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 tension and emotion from the jury right and i think it's 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 hard to kind of get your head around it now but the extent to which oj simpson was a phenomenon Mm -hmm. like he, he wasn't just an athlete he was an actor he broke the color burial in commercials like he was he was he was like a big deal in his time, right? And uh, I'd hesitate to make a, like a Cosby analogy, but I do think there is something to our collective reluctance to let go of a hero mm-hmm. when when that person's been a hero in in the realm of um, of civil rights and um, positive change. It's it's hard, right? It's hard. Yeah. It's hard to let OJ go. Right? Yeah. Um, there was also I thought just a lot interesting in terms of gender sarah paulson played marcia clark uh with brilliance i thought a lot of scenes in which it was very clear that um you know there was fuss being made about her hair and her wardrobe and um the and her being a mother and uh, tugging at her own sense of herself and her own emotions and her own professionalism and uh in a way that caused the viewer to think okay what if what if the what if marcia clark had been a man like how right. how differently would have this would this have all played so super interesting check that out also i'll have to check out the made in america documentary yeah. now it's kind of a nice uh nice miscommunication <laughs> that we both thought we were talking about the same thing and talking about totally different takes on the oj story i thought also i'd throw out a recommendation for something else that has two different names. There are evidently two movies in 2017 that came out with the name Veronica. And the one that I'd recommend is by a director named Paco Plaza. There's basically like this idea that this young woman in Spain, um, in a suburb of Madrid, becomes possessed in a way after uh, she and her friends try to use a Ouija board to contact an ex-boyfriend of uh, who died in I think a motor motorcycle accident uh, of one of the young women and it's based on a true story a 1991 case called the Valeca case in which uh, Estefania Gutierrez Lazaro was caught with friends in a Ouija board and afterwards started hallucinating and convulsing and seeing shadows her health deteriorated and she died in her bed a few months later and her parents uh, reported paranormal activity around her death super creepy movie i had read before people saying things like oh uh this movie gets turned off more than any other netflix movie like people stop it in mid-movie my honest impression is maybe they just didn't like the movie or maybe they got through it with their 12 year old and they're like no yeah it's possible (laughs) it was interesting so i watched it on your recommendation and i got a lot of different vibes from this film not only are there obvious comparisons that you can make to something like the exorcist but i saw some comparisons to like twin peaks because 
I don't think it's too big of a spoiler. The, the end of the film focuses on a photograph of the woman, mm-hmm. uh, the young mm-hmm. woman in question, which I got definitely like Laura Palmer vibes yes. from that. Yes. Uh, and then I think I think also like this. This is the film that had the score reminded me like this sort of like synthy score mm-hmm. that reminded me oh. of some synth uh, or uh, Italian synth composers like Suzanne Ciani. Is one or like Giorgio Moroder is a pretty well known name, uh, and so there are like a lot of things in this movie that I was able to pull out with, which were like, oh, I, I can I can dig this totally. Um, sustained synthesizers mm-hmm. and then juxtaposed with all this silence, which I'm totally a sucker mm-hmm. for. I love like the jumping out of your chair after there's been 45 seconds of you know utter silence, um, because someone's like you know transformed into a monster. Their eyes have gone black. Um, I love that shit. I read too that the so the young woman that plays this Sandra Escachena mm-hmm. evidently uh, really freaked out the people that were filming really? her. Uh, it was one of those situations that they say like she was maybe the first or second person to come in for casting, and they're like, "Yep, that's the one." And she was so good that a couple of times after they were filming, the camera crew was visibly disturbed by this young woman. What? What was your takeaway from this film in terms of so like thematically, I, like to me, the thing that it speaks to is this idea of dealing with grief and sort of not being able to let go or, or mm-hmm. sort of longing for for the ability like it not what it's about what happens when you don't have the the proper opportunity to say goodbye to somebody mm-hmm. right and, and that's sort of like the impetus behind the playing with the Ouija board that leads to everything and did any of that speak to you or? It did. I felt like it was had, had a little bit more to do with like her Catholicism. Mm-hmm. So she goes to a Catholic school. She's pretty much been charged with keeping track of her younger siblings. And she's become the de facto mother in her own household after her dad dies. And, you know, her mom's at work all the time. Because they say, like, the young woman says, I've never seen these things. This doesn't happen when you're home. Right. It's only when her mom's at work, which is a lot, uh, that, you know, these kids are sort of haunted by or her specifically veronica is haunted by this presence yeah there there's a there's an aspect of like festering grief festering and then becoming a thing in and of itself which i think was something that was done really well in like in babadook and Mm, other other films that sort of take our emotions and make them the monster right and there's also I, there was another element where they they focused on the fact that she was 15 and hadn't had her period yet. Right, right, right. And then I think that comes into play later. Yeah, you know, I wasn't really sure what to make of that. Other than that, she was sort of she was sort of this figure that was really in limbo between childhood mm-hmm. and adulthood. You know, and that sort of like was symbolically, poetically, the right. way in which she was between childhood and adulthood. But also other ways, like she, again, was, you know, behaving as, as a mother when she was, like, not mature enough to really be there yet, right. you know, and, and, and not emotionally mature enough to handle her father's death and be able to put that to rest and say goodbye properly and, and, and live her life. Super creepy movie, just really nightmarish moments. I mean, think of, like, this, like, that stereotype typical dream where you show up to your first day of school and you're like not wearing pants this there are moments like that in this but like the most horrific version of yeah. that nightmare yes. like not to spoil anything 
Uh, but the scene at the end where she she thinks that she has her young brother in her hands and has rescued him, and she looks down and her hands are empty. Mm. Um, he's in peril. Yes. Um, it was definitely an interesting movie, and I, I'm glad that I watched it. Because for someone who likes to think that they watch a lot of movies, horror is not sort of the thing that's typically on my radar. So, And when I usually see a horror movie, I often like them, so I don't know why I don't make an effort to watch more of them. So I'm glad that you recommended this because otherwise I probably would have it probably would have flown right over my head. Yeah, I'm exactly the opposite. Yeah. I, I I'm not a film buff, and if I do seek out any genre actively, it's probably horror mm-hmm. movies. I just like having the woods scared out of me, which this movie definitely did. I don't know if it's as scary as people are saying. Like, you'll you're so likely to turn this off in the middle of a film. Oh, like, yeah. I definitely made it to the end, no problem. Yeah. I did think it it was creepy afterward to read about the true story, and there's some like post uh, rolling the credits captions that are th- that stuck with me. Yeah. So, do you know if at the end of the film there's some of the images they look different, like they don't look as they look as though we're looking at documentary footage? Do you know if they went back to the actual locations and shot, or if that's like actual crime scene footage or? It is presented as if it is yeah. crime scene footage. I don't know if it is, but it's definitely... If it's not crime scene footage, it's presented in a very, right. like, real crime Blair Witch sort of, like, this is actually, yeah. you know, uh, staged to look gritty and look real right. and look like the crime footage. I'm going to have to watch it again. Cause I that... did read... I'm not sure if this how much truth there is to this. Um, I don't remember the... The website and and it's probably good that i don't remember where i read this because i don't think it was particularly reputable <laughs> but i did read somewhere that people were citing this as the only case in spain where a police officer had gone on record as saying he had witnessed something uh-huh. paranormal which is sort of sort of ties into the end of the movie okay cool so another film that you recommended was ravenous and again when you mentioned this i thought you were talking about <laughs> the 1999 film Ravenous that has like the music by Damon Auburn is about these um, cavalry soldiers like out west in the US who are isolated from anybody and then uh, there's this mystical element with like the Wendigo which is this creature that if you consume human flesh you bring your body uh, well I guess there's like the actual mythology and there's like the Marvel comics mythology that okay. it's turned into like a giant abominable snowman like creature and you're possessed with the spirit of the Wendigo but um, the Wendigo. Mm-hmm, but that is not the film you were talking about. Instead, you were talking about a 2017 French-Canadian zombie film. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm really the dunce here because it sounds like the movie that you're talking about is um, like, like when I mentioned it and you mm-hmm. said, I love that movie. Something in the back of my head clicked as like not quite right. And it's not because 2017's Ravenous isn't great. It's just not great in a way that I ever see a film buff being like i love this movie uh, it's a zombie flick it's really cool um it adds kind of like a different take on um it's it it's zombies are a little bit like 20 days later ish mm-hmm. zombies but it's in french it's called les affamés which i i think translates to ravenous or, or the closest english that we could get and the director is uh, Robin Albert. Basically, the idea is that we start with these characters um, that are on the run, but also 
not on the run from zombies to another town, on the run from zombies within their town and territorial right. about that town and about that land. And what was cool about it is that we know so little about the characters. Like we barely know their names. We have no context for them other than that they're rural. They all seem to be blood spattered and they're all kind of badasses in their own way. But other, other than that, there's really very little exposition. We just are dropped in the middle of uh, this massacre. And I just thought it was really amazing how um, this director managed to make us so empathetic toward these characters that we've never met and don't know anything about. Yeah. And I was interested by the zombie creatures just because they behave a little differently than, well, a lot differently than zombies are typically depicted. Mm-hmm. You know, in the later Romero films, he sort of develops the idea that zombies are sort of called back to their past lives to some extent. And uh, like in Land of the Dead, they display intelligence. But in this film, they don't just display some intelligence. Like they set traps for the for the human characters, and they also have constructed this chair sculpture. The chair yeah. sculpture. Now, did you watch through the credits? It's so wild because I didn't until okay. I was preparing to sort of recall all this for this podcast. And I saw this scene at the end and yeah. thought, oh my god, I, did, I must have parrot? turned it off during the credits. Yeah. What's with the parrot? I don't know what's with the parrot. I, I want to know. It's, it's kind of creepy. It's a little bizarre. I really thought the parrot was going to talk. And then that was oh, going to be some like idea that they that it was human-like and that they would react mm, to yeah. the parrot in some way because it was you know, imitating somebody that they had been after. I agree. I thought the other thing that was really cool about this was that it it took the zombie formula and variated on it really, really beautifully. Like, um, these zombies are, um, they don't follow zombie rules, right? right? Like, they can go into a trance. Um, they sort of worship this yeah, chair yeah. sculpture, this tower. It's almost like there's a low sort of buzzing sound when they're watching it. Um, they also... There's a part where they're they seem protective of it. So yes. the humans try to come and you know, or like WTF, there's a giant chair sculpture in the middle of the field and all these zombies are staring at it and presumably like adding to it. Right. So they're adding and building the sculpture of chairs the whole time. And it makes it it makes it fun to watch because you don't you know, we all know the zombie rules. So if yeah. the zombie rules are not clear and in play the whole way through the movie. It makes it a lot of fun. Also, um, this movie has just those things that, you know, you get done with the horror movie and there's this one infuriating question, like, why didn't they just do this? Or like, I don't understand why these people just didn't leave. You know, there's, there's something there that maybe I'm missing about that land and them needing to be protective. I think part of it is that in the initial outbreak, the zombies migrated to the cities where there were more people, but now they're sort of migrating back to the countryside because they've presumably exhausted their food supply. But it's sort of, it's sort of weird because they're also they have the rationale of trying to make it leave the, the countryside to the more rural area to go to the city under the presumption that it would be more protected. Right, but we don't know that they're yeah. quarantined in any way, or that the cities are quarantined in any way, right? Right, like, we we have no, well... We just know the cities are bad news right now. But the first thing we see is what is presumably the more popular area, because it's a racetrack, and right. someone being attacked at it. Mm-hmm. So, 
Perhaps that is the result of catching up to the urban areas or something. I don't no. think it spoils it, but one of my favorite lines at the end when he's, when you know we see the race car driver and the young yeah. girl is like, "Are you an astronaut?" <laughs> <laughs> um, I read a pretty befuddling review of this that called this movie a spry invocation of frontier politics, proposes critical considerations of sovereignty discourse, land title defense, and cultural dominance. And when I read that, I thought. Wow, I really missed the boat on this film. Yeah. <laughs> That's so heavy. Where, where was that review? Uh probably Rotten Tomatoes. Okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna seek that out because I, I'd be interested in reading the rest of that. One film that I thought of during this, and part of it is just because it's also a French Canadian film that also is about the consumption of flesh, although it's not a zombie film. It's called Raw. That came out in 2016. I think it's also on Netflix now by a director named Julia uh, Doctor now, um, and it. I think it was her directorial debut, and it's a film that I think affected a lot of people in a lot, in a lot of ways too. It's like a really strong debut film as well. And it's about a girl who goes to like a boarding school, um, and she's vegan, and then in, you know. By some strange circumstances, she ends up missing her flesh and then she can't stop herself. Raw. Raw. Okay. Mm-hmm. Check it out. Uh, so those are some movie recommendations for you. And we'll be right back with some more uh, formal things to check out. This is No Small Talk. We'll be right back. We are back. This is No Small Talk. I'm Stephanie Smittle, arts and entertainment editor for the Arkansas Times. And I'm here with Omaya Jones. And we are going to throw a couple of recommendations at you. My recommendation will not be a surprise to anybody that's ever been to Club Sway, but I'm going to say you need to hop online, go to Club Sway's website, and check out the videos of this uh, competition that they're doing called Fresh Fish. If you can get past the lewdness of the title, which you should be able to do if you're going to walk into Club Sway anyway, um, this is like a RuPaul's Drag Race style competition, and um, I have to hand it to these people. It's as if everybody at Club Sway has decided it is not enough for us to put on a stellar drag show. Mm-hmm. They're all themed. They're all immaculate. They have um, these elaborate personas. Um, there's, a, you know, one modeled maybe not modeled after uh, Mary Kate Olsen called Harry Kate Olsen. I mean, the, the, the production of this fresh fish competition is, is pretty elaborate. Um, so if you can get out to club sway this weekend, it'll be a good time. They're doing a, a, a drag show on Friday called Galian invasion usually kicks off around. You can get in around 9 PM. Um, but yeah, let's say check out club sway and fresh fish. This competition is uh, going to culminate in June, and they'll have like a finals where they do a, a lip sync battle on stage, and uh, this sort of really fun, playful, uh, body, trashy, but also beautiful production that that the, that they're putting on down there, and it's it's sort of. Maybe maybe an undersung pocket and maybe a chance for you, our listeners, to get out of your Friday night, Saturday night comfort zone and go dance. Cool. I'm going to recommend a show at UALR that actually starts today 
and Ghost of the 27th. And it's the show that you mentioned last week by an artist named Joshua Brindley mm-hmm. called Masculine Projections. On April 12th, he's actually going to be here doing an artist talk. Yeah, you a Little Rock, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so that is going to be Thursday, April 12th at 2 p.m. in the Wingate Center Room 101. I don't know if that's in the new art building or not. Yeah, I think yeah. that's so. Yeah. So Wingate Center for Art yeah. Plus Design is how they okay. style it. Um, that's the new spot. Cool. Did you check out any of those photos? Of I did. Work? Yeah, I did see some online, and they were really interesting. Uh, I'm interested in hearing him talk about them, and perhaps I know you said were you trying to? Do you want to say that on air? Were you trying to? Yeah, I, yeah. I, Joshua Brindley. I want to interview. Um, hopefully, we'll talk with him in a little bit more depth. But I feel like. Maybe a sign that that art is good is when I see it. I have so many questions. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I really want to know not only how did he put it together, but what was he thinking when he put it yes. together? You know, there's there there are a lot of layers. The, the name is Brinley, B-R-I-N-L-E-E, Joshua Brinley. And I think he teaches in Mississippi now. Oh, cool. So he'll be in town. So those are our recommendations. And do you have a move for the week? I do have a move for the week. Uh, We mentioned at the top of the hour that uh, just there's so much going on in central Arkansas right now. You can find all of that on pages 42 through 45 of this week's Arkansas Times. Check that out. Um, But I'm going to say the most unusual thing that you're probably going to run into this week in central Arkansas is this guy Cameron Carpenter. He is a Juilliard-trained organist. So really talented uh, church organist who has made it his mission to take the organ out of churches. And I never really thought about this, but most times that you go to see an organ concert, it is in a church or at least in some hall where, you know, this instrument has been installed because it's an instrument that is inseparable from the architecture that houses it. So like a pipe organ is not just a thing that you can move around. As you know, it's it's the console that you see, and that's what somebody's physically playing. But the pipes that are installed are installed in the building. You know, they're they're very much a part of, you know, wherever they're being housed. And Cameron Carpenter has sort of made it his mission to uh, unshackle them from church environments. And he plays this thing called the ITO, which is the International Touring Organ. Uh, it is enormous, thousands of pounds. Each of the speakers are six feet tall, and half of the subwoofer cabinets are larger than a refrigerator. Uh, he evidently fell in love with the organ. Uh, I don't know if you remember these childcraft encyclopedias. I had them no. when I was young, but maybe, maybe, maybe you didn't have them. They were sort of a precursor to like Wikipedia, but for kids. And you'd get a volume of them and leaf through them. And he, Cameron Carpenter, evidently saw the entry for a church organ. And there was an elegant man playing it. And he fell in love not only with the grandiose nature of that instrument, but also the fact that um, the man playing it was like very high fashion. And so Cameron is has also become known for like putting Swarovski crystals on his shoes and, um, you know, this he's, has this beautiful mohawk and he'll wear like leather tank tops and you know things you don't yeah. always see a pipe organist wearing cool what where's this and when that will be tuesday april 3rd 7 30 p.m at reynolds performance hall on the campus of uca tickets will run you between 27 
and forty dollars, and the name is Cameron Carpenter. Cool. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to our sponsor, Bentonville Film Festival, for sponsoring uh, the Arts and Entertainment Podcast for the Arkansas Times No Small Talk. I'm Stephanie Smittle. This is Omaya Jones here with me, and we will see you next week. (laughs) 